Well, good morning. You can go ahead and open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 7 as we continue our study through the Gospel of Matthew. Appreciate the songs that we sing and just the reminder of really what is the theme throughout the Gospel of Matthew, that Christ is King. He is King forevermore. We're reminded in the Psalms that he was seated enthroned at the flood from the ancient of times, the ancient one has always been and always will be our king and we look forward to that day when faith will be sighted and that is realized for us. As with that hope in mind that we come to our study again this morning in the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew chapter seven, as we are in the midst and really the second uh, closing in on the end of the Sermon on the Mount, it's here that we are reminded of the responsibility we have as disciples of Jesus Christ to live as citizens of the kingdom of heaven. We're given insight into what that looks like. What does it look like to live as a citizen of the kingdom of heaven? So we'll be continuing that study this morning. So I was thinking over the text this week as I was studying it and looking at the different themes, I was struck by something that really amazes me as a parent. And it's, I guess it's one of a number of things that amazes me, but it's, it's how much I don't have to teach my children. For example, I've never had to teach them to say the word no. I've never had to teach them how to disobey. I've never had to teach them how to lie. I've never had to teach them to get upset at something that didn't go their way. And I certainly never had to teach them to look out for their own self-interests. Selfishness is apparently second nature. And as I understand it, my children are not uniquely gifted in this innate skill set. Apparently these inerrant abilities are quite common. And we may laugh at this a little bit, we may chuckle, but if we think about it for very long, if we think and dwell on this subject very long, it begins to make us a little uncomfortable. Because we realize that we have never fully outgrown these same tendencies and temptations ourselves, have we? This is put on display maybe in drastic fashion every day after Thanksgiving on Black Friday when persons line up to be the first through the door to get the latest gadget or toy at a discount. And it's not so much the desire for the discount as it is the way persons treat one another in the pursuit of that purchase. That's not the only place or time selfishness is manifest. When you serve dessert, do you take the biggest piece or the smallest piece? Do you speak to waiters and waitresses with gentleness? Or do you get frustrated at mistakes that inconvenience you? How we respond when persons hurt us, when things are said against us, when we are inconvenienced and things don't go our way, says a tremendous about, amount about our disposition and inward motivations. It really says a lot about our heart. This morning we're gonna be looking at a text that highlights our own self-interests, as we'll be reminded this morning. And we must continually fight against this sinful propensity in our sinful flesh as we seek to live as faithful disciples and citizens of the kingdom of God. So let's look together as Jesus instructs us on faithful living as a disciple of Jesus Christ so that we might please our heavenly Father. Read along with me if you would, beginning in verse seven of Matthew seven. Jesus says, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. 
Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and he who seeks finds. And to him who knocks, it will be opened. Or what man is there among you who, when his son asks for a loaf, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, he will not give him a snake, will he? If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father, who is in heaven, give what is good to those who ask him? In everything, therefore, treat people the same way you want them to treat you, for this is the law and the prophets. Pray with me as we begin. Father, we come this morning to this text desiring to be changed, to be transformed more into the image of your Son. Lord, help us to look into a text like this, to ask questions as we should any time we come to your word about how we might please you, how we might conform our lives to your standard. Father, help us to realize, as we'll be reminded of this morning, the absolute necessity we have of leaning upon you for any of this. Lord, we thank you for how you teach us, you instruct us. We thank you for your spirit which guides us into all truth. May we humble ourselves and submit ourselves to your word and to bringing our lives in conformance with it this morning. In your name, amen. When we read verses 7 through 12, and really specifically 7 through 11, there can be a tendency to first read them with a focus on ourselves, on our prayers and answers to the persistence of our prayers, especially if you read just verses 7 and 8. Yet when we read the verses that way, what we're really demonstrating, if I can be just honest and transparent here, what we're really demonstrating is how high a view we have of ourselves and how self-centered our thinking is. And just to be clear, I'm guilty of this. I read a passage like this and my first inclination is to think about how my efforts in prayer or what my efforts in prayer are like and what they would produce or what could be produced from those efforts. When instead, I should see, when I look at these verses, my great neediness and my great dependence and need to depend upon God. This is reiterated three times for me with three different figures of speech. That my great neediness and lack of self-sufficiency is here emphasized to show how desperate my need is to take my petitions, my prayers, and my needs to God. There is nothing in here about self-sufficiency or something I can manufacture, or something I can create. Now, if you look at these verses, you realize that we're not introduced to the one who does answer the asking, the seeking, and the knocking until verse 11, right? Instead, we're just told that if we ask, it will be given. If we seek, we will find, and if we knock, it'll be open to us. But these things don't happen automatically. These aren't some magical words like open sesame that will unlock whatever it is that we're asking for. It's our Heavenly Father who does these things, as we see down in verse 11. What verses 7 and 8 begin to emphasize is that we are utterly dependent upon God. And now it's one thing to say that. It's another thing to act like it. I mean, what is it that makes a dependent? 
A dependent is one who relies upon someone else for basic needs. We're in the midst of tax season, and it's an even more technical definition of what a dependent is. I mean, we know that a child is dependent upon a mother or father, right? A ch young child can't work for food. They can't drive to the grocery store. They can't open a bank account. Small, ch small child can't even reach the counter to cook food. It would be absurd to think of an infant who can't even walk yet or talk yet to go out into the world and care for themselves. And yet with regard to our daily lives, to our spiritual lives and our spiritual well-being, we act as if we are grown-ups when we are children. We act as if we are not truly dependent upon a heavenly father. We try to manipulate things into existence. As we looked at a couple weeks ago, we're consumed with worry and the needs of this world. How many little young children wake up in the morning worried about food, worried about work, worried about provisions? No, mo most young children, when they wake up, they don't think about those things because they trust. There's this implicit trust in their parents. And yet we often act like stubborn children intent on going our way, providing for ourselves, and carrying on ourselves the worries of this world. So what is the solution? How do I develop this childlike mentality with regard to faith and life? Well, the answer is not to stop working hard. It's not to stop being diligent and to expect to just find food sitting on the table. That's not the lesson here. Instead, it's a reminder of what we looked at a couple weeks ago. As all of these texts, as they all begin to fit together and we see them coming together, we are to be faithful and diligent to obey God, which includes working hard, exercising diligence and discernment. But we are to rest in the truth that the results belong to him. We're not to get upset, worked up, worried, or anxious about the results. Whether it's having enough food on the table for tomorrow, whether we're going to have enough work, if an offer to buy a house is accepted, whether my car is going to start in the morning. In all these things, we're to be diligent, wise, and good stewards, but we must continually remind ourselves that even the ability to get up and work hard depends on God. We can do nothing apart from God's provision. We cannot manipulate anything into existence. We are here reminded that we are little children. And as little children who do not worry about having food, clothing, and other necessities. They trust in their loving parents who will care for them. We need to trust and rely upon God. And evidence that we trust and rely upon God is that we do not worry. We don't get frustrated. We don't get worked up over difficulties. Where we respond to even the most difficult circumstance by turning to the Lord in prayer and trust, knowing that he will provide exactly what is needed for our good in the midst of this. That's really the first thing we need to understand as we approach this text. As we begin to get into the content of it is our lack of self-sufficiency. Our need to approach this as children. I mean, it's highlighted for us in verses 10 and 11 where we are put into the, into the perspective, in the position of children. But there's another sinful tendency I have when I... It's just innate to me. It's going to impact and affect everything I do, even the reading of Scripture that I have to fight against, and that's my selfishness. 
Not only do I need to remind myself of my neediness, I also need to remind myself of my selfishness. Why is that? Well, when I arrive at a text like this, my first inclination is to see these verses as a vending machine where God is ready to grant whatever I might say if I will just insert my prayer or petition. In fact, many persons take these verses to mean you will receive anything, or at least anything that isn't sinful, as long as you'll ask, as long as you're persistent in your asking. The question we need to ask is, is that what Jesus is really saying here? Is that what he is teaching us? If it is, then how are we to reconcile this teaching when I don't receive something I ask for? I mean, it's not inherently sinful to ask for a new car or to ask for a new job or to ask for immediate relief from a situation, right? There's nothing inherently sinful about those requests. So what happens when they aren't answered? Is this verse still true? Was Jesus just using hyperbole? He didn't really mean what he said here. What about Jesus himself? If ever there was a desperate asking, seeking, and knocking, it was Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. The night before the crucifixion, praying that the Lord would remove the cup, that he would not have to endure the cross and the weight of mankind's sin. I mean, if God would not answer such a desperate plea from his son, what does that mean for us? We're left with only two options, right? Either one, this verse is untrue or at best to be understood as rhetorical hyperbole. Or two, we're not rightly reading and interpreting this passage. I do believe, I do not believe that this passage is using exaggeration for emphasis. So I need to ask, is there another clear way to read this text? I believe the answer is yes. And again, to help pull off the blinders, to put on the glasses that give me the corrective and the correct lens through which I can see this text and understand this text, I need to be reminded of my natural and selfish inclination to read this is all about me. My desire to make this verse about me is what leads me to be short-sighted in my interpretation. As a result, I have to deal with my limitations as an interpreter and remind myself of the need to put to death my pride my arrogance when I approach scripture because it so easily and quickly distorts our reading and understanding? Because the reality is the answer to our question is rather simple. And it first comes from applying the golden rule of interpretation, which is context. What is the context? And then as we look at this context, asking what is the it that is given? What is the it that will be received? What is the it that will be answered? What is the it that will be found in the seeking? Your Bibles note that Jesus says it will be given, it will be open to you. It's implied that when you seek, you are looking for something definite. None of us would set out on a quest to seek without having some idea of what we're looking for, or at least some objective. We don't meander about for no reason. So what is the it? What are we asking for? What are we to seek? Well, looking at the context, just a few verses earlier. In fact, if we had been sitting on that hillside that day, listening to Jesus speak, gathered around with his disciples in the crowd, listening to those words, just a few moments earlier, we would have heard Jesus say in 633, 
Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And then sandwiched between the seeking Jesus encourages in 633 and the seeking here in chapter 7 is the discussion we looked at last week on not critically judging and elevating ourselves over others, but instead working to rightly judge ourselves before trying to address the sins of any other person. Jesus then is here addressing in verses 7 through 11 an answer to the question that was burning in the hearts of the disciples of those who were citizens of the kingdom of God. And that question was this. How do I stop this judgmental attitude? How do I fight against this pride that seeks to view myself as superior to those around me? How am I to live like a citizen of the kingdom of God? The calling is too high. It is too hard. I cannot do it myself. That's exactly where we should be. Desperate to understand how I can live like a citizen of the kingdom when I recognize how selfish and how needy I am and I begin to see and to experience that poverty of spirit we talked about from the Beatitudes. So what is it that we pray for that Jesus promises that we will be given, provided to those who ask and seek and knock? Simply put, everything pertaining to kingdom living that we have seen throughout the Sermon on the Mount. I want to walk through a brief overview of the things that would have been encompassed in these petitions, in the asking, seeking, and knocking. And to do that, we're going to walk through just very briefly the Sermon on the Mount that we've studied thus far. Remind ourselves of those things which encompass seeking righteousness and seeking the kingdom of God. In fact, it begins in verse 6 of chapter 5, doesn't it? Where we're reminded to hunger and thirst for righteousness. It's the same thing that was reiterated in verse 33 of chapter 6 and is implied here in the seeking. Just a few. Moments before that, Jesus emphasized the poverty of spirit in verse 3 of chapter 5. A reminder to pray for an understanding of the weightiness of our sin, to realize the significance of our sin in verse 4 of chapter 5. A citizen of the kingdom of God prays for a merciful disposition in verse 7. A pure heart and confession of sin in verse 8. Praise for a peace in their relationships in verse 9 and verse 25. The disciple of Jesus Christ prays and seeks for good works and opportunities to glorify God in verse 16. The disciple of Jesus Christ, a citizen of the kingdom, prays for help in being obedient in verse 17 through 20 and 27 through 30 of chapter 5. They pray for reconciliation with with those against whom they've sinned, in verse 24. They pray for a God-honoring marriage, in verses 31 through 32. They pray for honesty and truth, in verses 33 through 37. They pray for help in laying aside their rights to pursue humility, to make restitution, in verses 38 through 42. They pray for help in loving their enemy, for well-being and the salvation of those who hurt them, in verses 43 through 48. In chapter 6, verses 2 through 4, we should be praying for generosity towards others, a heart that longs to give and be generous. 
should be praying for help in the fight to maintain a consistent life of prayer in verses five through eight. We pray that God's name would be sanctified in this world in verse nine. We pray for God's coming mediatorial and eternal kingdom in verse 10. We do pray for daily needs and God's provisions as we see in verse 11 and we see down in verses 30 through 34. We pray for forgiveness of sins and attitudes and actions toward others. Pray for deliverance from temptation and evil in verse 13. We pray for help in fasting and highlighting our dependence upon God and a constant reminder of our need for him in verses 16 through 18. A disciple of Jesus Christ, a citizen of the kingdom, prays and longs for the heavenly reward and the ability to serve God in verses 19 through 21. Pray to be a light and a testimony through their generosity in this life in verses 23 through 22 through 23. They pray for a heart that is solely devoted to God alone and no other and that no earthly things would distract them from that in verse 24. They pray to not worry and be anxious in verses 25 through 30. Pray for an increase in faith in verse 30. Pray for love toward others rather than a condemning spirit in chapter seven, verses one through two. We pray for an awareness of our sin and our neediness of spirit in verse three. Pray for gentleness toward others in verses three through five of chapter seven. And then in verses five through six, discernment, clarity, and wisdom in dealing with others. There's a lot there. There is a lot the disciple of Jesus Christ is to be asking, to be seeking, and to be knocking for. But this governs what it is. All of these fall under the umbrella of what it means to be a disciple of Jesus Christ, to be a citizen of the kingdom of God, to pursue righteousness, and to pursue the kingdom of God. And a final reminder as we are asking, seeking, and knocking is that our prayer and that in our prayer we must believe and not doubt as James reminds us in James 1.6. We are to be like trusting children, always believing that our Heavenly Father will grant our needs. As Osborne notes, a child expects a loving response and will get one. While Jesus does teach persistent and believing prayer elsewhere, the grammar here is not focused on the persistence of the disciple. It is focused on the generosity and the character of the Father. That's what this verse is about. That's what these verses in this section is about. They are not about us. They are about the generosity and the character of our Heavenly Father. In Israel's history, God has already shown that this is His character, that He longs to grant promises and grant these promises specifically. He told Israel a very similar thing in Jeremiah 29, 13, where he said, you will seek me and find me when you search for me with all your heart. This is the character of who God is. Nothing has changed. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. The emphasis then of verses seven through eight here is on what the Father will do, not on the disciples, not on the granting to the disciple of Jesus Christ everything needed, or everything wanted, but in everything that is needed to please the Father. He will grant to us everything we ask for that seeks to please the Father. 
then in verses 9 through 11, Jesus moves from asking for these things to realizing the granting of these things. From the disposition of the Father in verses 7 and 8 to the actions of the Father in verses 9 through 11. And the argument Jesus uses is simple and straightforward. If an earthly father knows how to give good gifts, then certainly your heavenly father knows how to do this. This is an argument from the lesser to the greater, from the earthly to the heavenly. Verses 9 through 11 continue to illustrate, again, they don't let us get away from the fact that we have a great need and dependence by casting us as children in need of provision from our Father. And the imagery here is purposeful. Whether we recognize it or not, whether we will acknowledge it or not, we are deeply dependent upon God in this life. And notice that the requests here are for actual needs, not wants. These are necessary things as a citizen of the kingdom of God, as a disciple of Jesus Christ. As we've seen in the past few weeks, pursuing the kingdom of God then results in us being given and granted additional gifts and the needs of this world. So we pray and seek the kingdom of God, praying that we would look more and more like a citizen of the kingdom of heaven, and God promises to grant that request as we pray and practice his will. And the additional benefit is that when we are sincerely and firstly pursuing the kingdom, any other thing we truly need in this life will be added to us, as we see in 633. This whole section from verses 7 through 11, illustrate what James says in James 1.16, where he says, Do not be deceived, my beloved children or brethren. Every good thing given and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. In comparing human gifts to the Father, of the Father, Jesus adds the note about man's sinful tendencies and sinful flesh in verse 11. In fact, he rather forthrightly says, you then being evil. This was not a comment on their eternal designation. Because the you here are the disciples to whom he's addressing. But he is highlighting that man is inherently sinful. And that even a disciple of Jesus Christ still battles sinful flesh. This truth is so basic that Jesus doesn't even need to explain it. He just slips it into this statement, expecting no one to counter what he has just said. The depravity and sinfulness of man is central to the gospel. Notice the picture that he paints with that one word in light of the context of what he's describing and the gifts of the Father. If man is not in desperate need of God and in need of salvation, then Jesus' life, death, burial, and resurrection are unnecessary. But because man is sinful, unable to save himself, at war with God, an enemy with God, his life, death, burial, and resurrection are absolutely necessary. Because of man's inability to solve his own condition, Jesus died as the sacrifice for our sins to redeem for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. This almost passing comment by Jesus regarding the sin, sinful desires of all humans is intended to highlight yet again our great neediness. It reminds us of how much we need a Savior. 
takes us right back to the beginning of the Beatitudes, our great need to repent of our sin and be saved from our sin. And until we've experienced the satisfaction of that desperate need, everything else, every other need, every other want on this earth pales in comparison. And so the greatest need of man, his sinfulness to be to be saved from his sinfulness is highlighted by the very one who was given by a loving father as the greatest gift mankind could ever receive. In other words, he highlights our greatest need with that one statement to highlight the greatest gift the father has ever given, which is Jesus Christ himself. What an amazing picture and illustration was being painted for the disciples in the midst of the promise of good gifts from the father. The greatest gift is standing right here in front of you. So then we recognize that the good gifts in these verses are that enabling to live as citizens of the kingdom of God. Having experienced the transformation that comes through faith in Christ and forgiveness of sins, the repentant disciple then prays and seeks to please the Father and to walk before him in obedience. And it's in light of this, in the context of not critically judging and elevating ourselves above others, that Jesus then turns to the outward expression of these answered prayers. What does it look like in the life of a disciple of Jesus Christ to pray, to seek, to knock, asking for these things? For the Father to give them, how do we know? What, how is it manifested? We have our answer in verse 12. Notice the therefore. This therefore is a term of conclusion, of summary, calling us to look back at what has been previously stated. The preceding verses just emphasize our need to pray for kingdom qualities in our life, particularly in light of our selfish and self-centered view toward persons. And now we are provided both instructions and example on what kingdom living and obedience looks like in verse 12. In everything, therefore, treat people the same way you want, to, want them to treat you. For this is the law and the prophets. Jesus will again show the close connection between seeking the Father, seeking the kingdom of God, and seeking to love others towards the end of Matthew. In Matthew twenty-two thirty-five, 35, he, he's approached by one of the religious leaders who asks him a question, saying, Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And Jesus said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and foremost commandment. The second is like it. So you seek to love the Lord your God with all your heart. You seek to love him with all your soul and with all your mind. And the second is you shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend the whole law and the prophets. In both of these instances, Matthew 22 and Matthew 7, Jesus gives this instruction not to replace the Old Testament, not to replace the law and the prophets, but to fulfill, or better put, to realize the greatest example, the teaching of the law, the greatest example we have of the teaching of the law and the prophets. Remember, as we've looked at the word fulfill previously in Matthew, it's better translated as realize or to experience in the greatest way up until this point. It rarely means to complete or finish something. And the logic of this section might be expressed as the Father certainly will give all good things to you when you ask him, for you are his dear children through Jesus. Therefore, you in turn give good things to everyone who asks of you. Even if they don't ask, give good things to them. 
How many times do we receive good gifts from the Father that we haven't even asked for? This is not a new teaching, by the way, that Jesus gives. I challenge you to find any teaching in the New Testament outside of the mystery of the church that is not in the Old Testament. We've seen over and over and over again in Matthew the taking us back to the Old Testament and what was in the Old Testament teaching. In fact, there's one chapter in particular we continue returning to, which is Leviticus 19. And we find ourselves there again with Leviticus 19.18, where you would read, you shall not take vengeance nor bear any grudge against the sons of your people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There are so many allusions to this particular chapter in the Old Testament. Leviticus 19 is such an important and crucial text for understanding the New Testament and seeing that beautiful continuity that does exist between the Old and the New Testament. And just to be clear, this is not instruction to do to others so that you will receive what you want from them. The focus is solely on how you treat others. There is no expectation of response, no expectation of reward. This is solely about your attitude, about whether you're acting like your father. Our problem is that we get upset or frustrated when persons don't respond the way we want or the or act the way we want. I mean, I did my part, why can't they do their part? Again, what happened? Immediately the focus was on myself. We critically judge, we critically assess others. Why can't they get it? Why haven't they responded quick enough? Why aren't they doing what I want them to do? Luther noted that the trouble is that the world and our old Adam refuse to let us ponder what Jesus says and measure our lives against the standard of this teaching. Because it's a hard task to measure each day by this teaching. We let it go in one year and out the other. If we always measured our lives and actions against this standard, we would not be so coarse and heedless in what we do, but we would always have enough to do, he said. We would become our own teachers, teaching ourselves what we ought to do. We would not have to chase after holy lives and holy works, nor would we need many lawyers and law books. Jesus states this briefly. And it should be learned easily if only we were diligent and serious in acting and living according to it. The golden rule orients us toward our neighbors and those around us. It demands selflessness and laying aside of rights. It demands mercy and gentleness. It requires that the disciple of Jesus Christ put feet to the words Jesus has spoken throughout this Sermon on the Mount. It also iterates that the gospel of Jesus Christ is not merely for my personal benefit but for the benefit of those around us. Like the analogy of salt and light, others are to see our good works and glorify our Father who is in heaven. If you remember, Jesus focused a great deal of effort and energy toward reminding us of how to treat others in the second half of chapter five. And as we noted, this treatment of others was continually bound up in the theological reality that man is made in the image of God. This verse then does not take the focus off of pleasing God to pleasing man somehow. Verse 12 is still not about pleasing man. Even though we are to consider others as more important than ourselves, the focus is still not at the horizontal level. But rather it's recognizing that every neighbor is created in the image of God and we are to respond accordingly. 
And so in treating others as we would have them treat us, we are at the same time asking God to treat us as those who bear his image. It's not a foreign concept. We've already seen the reminder to forgive others or God will not forgive. We've seen in the reminder to not slander and be judgmental or condescending towards others or we will elicit the same judgment and condescension. Toward the end of Matthew, Jesus will again teach this truth explicitly in Matthew 25 where he says in verse 40, the king will answer and say to them, truly I say to you, to the extent that you did to one of these brothers of mine, even the least of them, you did it to me. This was likewise John's emphasis throughout his epistles where he said, little children, love one another. I like the story Jerome relates. Jerome was responsible for the translation into Latin, which was the common language of the time. He was also a church historian, and he related this story about John and his commentary on Galatians. He talked about John, he said, the blessed John the Evangelist lived in Ephesus until extremely old age. His disciples could barely carry him to church. He couldn't even walk anymore. They would, they would come along, they would put him on a litter, you know, two or four of them would carry him to where they would meet. He could not muster the voice to speak many words, so he was there to listen and to be an encouragement, but he could no longer do much of the teaching or preaching. During individual gatherings, he usually said nothing but this. This is what he would say over and over again. Little children love one another. Can you imagine that for a second? You have the Apostle John, the one who leans his head against the bosom of Christ in the Lord's, in the Last Supper, the one who is called the beloved disciple, you have him in your presence. You have him near the end of his life. What words will he leave us with? One who knew Christ, who walked with Christ, who loved Christ, what will he leave us with? And week in and week out, he says the same thing. Little children love one another. The disciples and brothers in attendance, they actually became a little bit annoyed that they heard the same thing over and over again. And finally, they said, teacher, why do you always say this? And he replied with a line worthy of John, because it is the Lord's commandment, and if it alone is kept, it is sufficient. So how do I put that into practice? What does that look like? We all understand the concept of love, but how do I do this? How do I, how do I prefer others as more important than myself? Well, certainly by practicing many of the same disciplines we've looked at these many weeks as we've studied the Sermon on the Mount, we need to develop a low view of ourself and develop that sense of neediness by regularly and specifically confessing sin. Remind yourself of how sinful you are. Go to the Lord daily confessing sin and be specific about it. Don't leave it generalized. Acknowledge where your struggles are. Acknowledge where your battles are. No war is ever won by a general generically giving instructions to the troops. Identify the weak points and attack them in prayer. Identify where you have sin. It will humble you and it will help you. Pray regularly for persons, especially persons that are hard for you to love. Nowhere in scripture will you find the admonition, 
pray for them after you love them. We're to pray for our enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. Pray for them so that you may love them. And where you struggle to do this, confess as sin your weakness in this area. Be purposeful in developing selflessness. Identify areas you're selfish. Where are places that you put yourself first? Maybe it is, and now I've got to start taking the smaller piece of dessert. You know, not in a hurry to take that first parking spot. I don't need to fight over my place in line. Whatever it is, there's so many different ways this can be applied. You know yourselves. Be honest with yourselves in those weaknesses. Where am I selfish? Where do I need to put others before myself? When you have the opportunity and the right to be hurt or offended, lay it aside. Stop it. This goes back to cultivating a disposition and attitude of forgiveness and a readiness and willingness to forgive. It's important that we recognize our selfishness and selfish tendencies, to realize that they are ever around us. They're like the weeds in the garden, that the moment you stop fighting them, they spring back more vigorously than before. It's as if you didn't even do anything to begin with. That's what sin does. That's what specifically pride and selfishness do. More insidious and quick growing than any other sin in our lives. And really, they're the root and the trunk from which all the other sins begin to spring out. And so we have to fight them daily, putting them to death. as we seek to be disciples and faithful disciples of Jesus Christ. In closing, I want to read you one of the prayers from the Valley of Vision, a collection of Puritan prayers regarding our neediness as we seek to be more like Christ and to live as a disciple of the kingdom of God. Father of Jesus, dawn returns, but without thy light within, no outward light can profit. Give me the saving lamp of thy spirit that I may see thee, the God of my salvation, the delight of my soul, rejoicing over me in love. I commend my heart to thy watchful care, for I know its treachery and power. Guard its every portal from the wily enemy. Give me quick discernment of his deadly darts. Help me to recognize his bold disguise as an angel of light and bid him be gone. May my words and works allure others to the highest walks of faith and love. May loiters be quickened to greater diligence by my example. May worldlings be won to delight in acquaintance with thee. May the timid and irresolute be warned of coming doom by my zeal for Jesus. Cause me to be a mirror of thy grace, to show others the joy of thy service. May my lips be well-tuned, symbols sounding thy praise. Let a halo of heavenly mindedness sparkle around me and a lamp of kindness sunbeam my path. Teach me the happy art of attending to things temporal with a mind intent on things eternal. Send me forth to have compassion on the ignorant and miserable. Help me to walk as Jesus walked. My only Savior and perfect model, his mind, my inward guest, his meekness, my covering garb. Let my happy place be amongst the poor in spirit. My delight, the gentle ranks of the meek. 
Let me always esteem others better than myself and find in true humility an heirdom to two worlds. Let's pray. Father, would you help us as we seek to be faithful disciples, to lay aside our selfishness, our pride, to be diligent in the battle against them each and every day, to work hard at considering others as more important than ourselves, to live out in the midst of these interpersonal relationships and dealings with one another, the gospel of Jesus Christ, that we would be a light and salt to those who are watching. May our lives be the greatest testimony of the transforming work of the gospel that persons will ever see. Father, we thank you for the clarity of your word, for the fact that you have not left us to wander around, wondering how we might please you, how we might go about becoming equipped to please you, but you've given us everything pertaining to life and godliness. You've given us both the instruction and you've given us your spirit. Father, may we appropriate these things in prayer, praying for those things which you will and have said you will absolutely answer. May we pray according to your will. May I ask these things in your name. Amen.